for them, had consequences for us. It results in the world we live in today. They really did something they couldn't undo, which is, in my estimation, what all sin is. There's two types of sin, of course. You've probably heard preachers say this. You know, there's sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission is telling a lie, which is violating, rebelling against what God specifically says to do. And then there's sins of omission, which is not doing what God says to do. If you don't pray, as God's called us to do that, that's a sin of omission. That's leaving out. If you don't worship, that's a sin of omission. So, uh, we got two types of sin, and it wasn't just in their case, it's in our case. Our sin puts us really in a hopeless condition. Uh, Sin is undoable. And so because of that, we need, we need a Savior. Maybe you've heard people say, well, you know, I just think if you just live a good life, you know, if you just live your life according to the Ten Commandments, you'll be okay. Well, I understand the principle of what they mean. The Bible is the good book for a reason. And if you strive to follow God's commands, uh, you'll be better off than for not stri- striven to follow his commands. However, and this is a big however, first of all, most people don't know all Ten Commands. Secondly, uh, there's 601 other commands in addition to the Ten Commands that were a part of the law. Thirdly, and this is the problem with the law, the law doesn't give us hope for redemption. So, if you know, one of the Ten, ten Commandments is, you know, thou shalt not lie. All right? Let's say you lie. Then what? Okay? Aaron knows the Ten Commandments. He knows thou shalt not lie. He knows that's a... But he tells a lie. I'm not sure if Aaron's really ever told a lie or not, but just for sake of example. Right, okay. But what's the problem? The problem is the Ten Commandments never give us a remedy for our condition. He's told a lie. He's a liar. The law condemns him. That's all the law does. The law says this is God's perfect standard. And at some point, at least one, uh, probably more than one, we will fail to meet the standard. That's where the law falls short. The law only leads us to condemnation. The law only leads us to Christ. Talked about this morning, Genesis chapter 3. In punishing the serpent, God says this, chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay? This is a uh, foretelling of Jesus coming. Okay? He is going to come. He's saying this to the serpent. He's saying there's going to be, there's going to be a, a, a day coming when the one who descends from woman will crush you. You'll wound him, but he will crush you. Right? So this tells us there's, there's, a, there's a coming one who's going to deal with sin, who's going to crush the serpent, and who will come from a woman. This is where sin starts, but also where our hope begins. Right? Scripture tells us who that is pretty clearly. Lots of Scripture points us to the coming Savior. 
And if you think about it, and this is really, I think, where it helps to read the Scripture with our Jesus glasses on, with our Savior glasses on. If you will look at Scripture, not as a series of stories to be methodically analyzed, which we can do, but if you look for Jesus in every story, I think it completely transforms how you read, certainly the Old Testament. Think about this, and this is a short list, there's lots of examples, but Jesus, the coming Savior, would be the true and better ark. The first ark, Genesis chapter 6. Okay? Jesus would be the true and better ark. He would be the vessel of salvation to survive the only means of surviving the coming destruction and wrath. Jesus is the true and better temple. He is the presence of God with us. The temple was where you could go to be in the presence of God, but there were still a lot of divisions to it. If you were women or Gentiles, forget about going anywhere near the temple. And even if you were allowed into the courtyard, into the temple, it was not without sacrifice. And even if you got to go into the holy place, you never, ever went into the most holy place. That was just for the high priest. And just once a year. This points us to... (laughs) To a true and better temple, which is Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the true and better high priest. He's the the only mediator between God and man. He makes a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Not just once a year, but once for all. Jesus is the true and better Lamb of God. The perfect, unblemished sacrifice required by God. Silently led to slaughter by our sin. He's the true and better sacrifice required by the law, who, whose perfect atoning blood covered our sins and made them as white as snow. And you begin to read all of these, and there's countless more examples. Jesus, every part of the law and the prophets, if you really get down to think about it, points to the coming Savior, Jesus the Christ. The Savior was necessary for what reason? Well, we understand. He, he came to save. That's implicit in His name. Our sin separates from us from God, and we, we can't reconcile it by ourselves. We don't have the ability to pay the debt. You ever been in a position financially where you were unable to pay the bill that you owed? That's, that's a hard spot. fills you with stress and fear and worry and... But if you just can't do it, what do you do? This is where Jesus comes in. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, if you're following along. Isaiah 64, 6. It says, We all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. You aren't good enough. Your righteous works don't make you any better, because they can't pay the debt that you owe. And so, that's why we need the Savior. Isaiah, go back a few chapters to Isaiah 53, as he tells us about the 
the suffering Savior, the suffering servant. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts chapter 8 when Philip came up into the chariot. This is the very scripture he's reading. He's confused about it because he doesn't know if Isaiah is talking about himself or someone else. Of course, that is a nice segue to lead him to Jesus, which is what he did. But read the description. Who has believed our, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. I don't know if you have been watching The Chosen, if you've ever watched The Passion of the Christ, if you've ever watched some movie where uh, an actor portrays Jesus. Quite a challenge if you think about it. But all the Jesuses I've ever seen, they look Jesus-y. <laughs> they look like the Jesus that I picture. But, but Isaiah says Jesus didn't look that way. He was like a root out of dry ground. Now this is a, an analogy Kansans in a dry spring can relate to. You ever see a root out of dry ground? You don't pay much attention to it unless you trip over it. It's just kind of very plain, very ordinary, not necessarily beautiful or majestic. And this is what he goes on to say. He had no form or beauty, beauty or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. Jesus didn't look like a Hollywood star. He didn't look like a model. There was something very plain and ordinary about him, was what Isaiah says. And, and, and worse than that, he had sort of a, maybe a, a rain cloud over his head. If you, he was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This tells you something about Jesus. You ever see somebody, or you just think about something, somebody's going through, and you think, man, it just seems like they, God has just let them go or something. I mean, that's maybe not the proper way to think about it, but this is what Isaiah says we saw when we saw Jesus. Obviously on the cross, but perhaps in everyday life, there was an aspect to him that was, he seemed stricken. Afflicted. But, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. 
One translation says, to crush him and to cause him to suffer. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Catch that. That's where righteousness comes from. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, which is you and I. This is a full description of the suffering Savior. The weight, you talked this morning we talked about the weight of sin. Jesus bore all of that. And not just for our sin of people here living today, right now, but for the entire world. Now it's up to them whether or not to take hold of the saving grace of Jesus. But he bore that in himself through his blood on the cross. So he was sent to save us. That was his mission. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Verse John 4, 14, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Some teach that Jesus only died for an elect, for a certain few. There's a limited atonement. Scripture just does not say that. Scripture tells us that Jesus died for everyone. Now, will everyone, by faith, accept the gift of atonement? No. But his sacrifice was made for the entire world. So whether it was saving Lazarus from death, saving Peter from drowning, saving a woman from bleeding, saving a guilty criminal on the cross... Jesus was in his nature, no matter how he looked, he was a savior. He came to save. He could do no less. And we need to be clear, like we talked about this morning, that he didn't just come to save us in an esoteric sense, but in a very real sense, from sin. Matthew one twenty one. she will bear a son. This is to Joseph talking about Mary. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the Apostle Paul. When he came face to face with Jesus, understanding his saving nature, he understood what it was all about. And he became convicted of his sin. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a righteous, God-fearing man. But but when he came face to face with Jesus, what did that transform his thinking? He said, I'm a sinner. I'm the worst of sinners. It's the power of the Savior. When we talk about Jesus saves us from sin, it's important that we identify sin as sin. 
We think about that. There's several lists in Scripture, and I thought about reading all of them, and I thought, nope, it'll take too long. But there are very specific lists that are in and of themselves not comprehensive. But if you want to read them, Romans chapter 1, 28 through 32. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and, and this one we will read. I say that because when we think about sin, we either become overly obsessed with our sin and forget our need for a Savior and try to fix it ourselves, or we become overly fixated, fixated on someone else's sin. And neither of those two extremes is good. So 1 Corinthians 6.9 is one of the list of sins. We're going to go through it. And you know, Paul here addressing a church that had all of this stuff, all of this sin, and he lays it right out. He says, do you not know, this is verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the word there is pornea, where we get the word pornography from, okay, which is just kind of an umbrella term referring to all sexual immorality. Okay? So pornography is sexual immorality. Graphia means picture. So it's pictures and videos of all sorts of sexual immorality. Nor, adult, uh, nor idolaters, those who place anything in place of God. We think, I don't bow before idols, but it's very easy to be an idolater and, and not have idols in your home, but have plenty of idols in your heart. Nor adulterers, okay? Someone who breaches the marriage covenant. Well, uh, Jesus was clear that the visual part... That adultery can, can, is not just a matter of a physical act. Adultery can happen right in here. Nor men who practice homosexuality. Uh, the word there, uh, malakoitai, male better, one who sleeps with a man in a sexual way. Nor thieves, okay, people who steal all the time. Got any problem with thieves in our world? Are there stores that basically just count on a certain percentage of their inventory being stolen? How many news stories have you seen of you know, people just walking out of Walmart or Target or going to CVS or Walgreens? Those are thieves. And Paul says, there's no place in the kingdom of God for thieves. Nor the greedy... Greedy is a, is a heart condition. It's not just wealthy people. You can be very greedy and have no money at all. You can be very greedy and have lots of money. You can be very greedy and be in the middle class. It's not an amount in a bank account. It's a heart condition. Nor drunkards, okay, those who lose all self-control to alcohol. Nor revilers, those who... Uh, those who revolt against God's way, mock God. Swindlers, those who try to cheat others, those who try to make a quick buck, those who try to cut corners. Uh, 
Um, those who cheat others out of money or property. And he lists all of these behaviors. And he says, these will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is so clear. I can't think that scripture could be any less clear than that. As I said this morning, I'm reading way too many books about cultural issues and some Christians thinking on it. And I go and I write in the notes and I'm like, you know, but there are, there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand. Agreed? Sure. There are things that are difficult. Peter says this about Paul's writing. There are things that are difficult. I don't know exactly what that means. But there are things in there that are pretty clear. That God can, you know, take an eight-year-old who can read, and he can read that and tell you what it means. And this is, of course, not the only list, but the reason I wanted to get into this one is because what he says in verse 11. Such were some of you. He's addressing sinners who've been saved. People who left this lifestyle. People who stopped with this behavior. See, the church is a place for sinners. The call of the gospel is to repent, to turn away. The repent word means uh, to agree with God in regard to your sin, to be convicted enough that you change your behavior. So, you know, culturally, you know, if, if you've got someone who practices homosexuality, should that person be welcome to the church? Well, I, I say kind of, we need to get clear what we mean by welcomed into the church. If a person struggles with same-sex attraction and they are convicted because of the, what the Word says, that it's wrong, that they shouldn't do that, and they, they are repenting of it. They don't desire to do that. They want to be freed from it. They want to be forgiven of it. Then absolutely, church is exactly where they need to be. That's the hope of the gospel. By the way, that's one sin. <laughs> There's a lot more sins. This is what I love about Celebrate Recovery. It is the idea that God will... Forgive any sin if we let him. He says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were washed in the blood of Jesus. You were sanctified. You, sanctified means to be made holy. You were sanctified by Jesus. You were justified. The word there means just as if I'd Easier to remember, just as if I'd never sinned. Sanctified, justified, washed. How? Only through Jesus. If by welcomed into the church we mean tolerated, accepted, celebrated, no repentance, 
No desire to change. The desire to continue living in sin so that grace may abound. The scripture speaks against that. In fact, Paul's pretty clear to the church at Corinth. There was a case of sexual immorality. He said, it's so bad, that kind of stuff doesn't even happen with the pagans. The pagans, the irreligious would say, whoa, that is pretty wicked stuff. Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? Romans chapter 6. God forbid. May it never be. So, I'm going to be real clear about that. And I give one example there. There's any of those sins are welcome in the church if you are ready to be freed from sin and have your debt paid, be washed and justified and sanctified. Your sins and my sins are paid for at the cross. If you agree with God that sin is sin and there's hope, and that your sin, whatever it is, whether it's idolatry or lust or adultery or homosexuality or stealing or greedy, uh, greed or drunkenness or pride or lying, and that you can do nothing about it by yourself, then you need a Savior. But, here's the problem. In our culture, certain behaviors are no longer considered sin. And some churches are are saying, these are not sinful. We accept these things as okay. And the problem with, with, and easy to pick on the culture, but the problem is, if you have no sin, then you need no Savior. And I always find it interesting that it's only certain sins that are getting a pass. Right? I've, I've got some sins. They aren't the, the culturally accepted ones. You know, they're not celebrated in June or anything like that. But, you know, how convenient is that your sins get a pass? Uh, this is my identity. I can't help it. This is just the way I am. That's the frustrating part, is the enemy has making sin into an identity. And if it's an identity, you stand pretty free and clear of needing any to do anything about it. You couldn't do anything about it. It's a part of your identity as much as your eye color and your chromosomes and all that. So, this is the challenge, is that... Anytime our world changes its definition of what's okay and not okay, uh, it removes the need for the Savior to come in and save from that sin. Jesus was the Savior, not a Savior. He was sent for you and to save you from your sin. All the sin you thought about this morning, Jesus came for that. Jesus died for that. And Jesus came to redeem you from that. So, End tonight with some good news. John chapter 3, verse 16, 17. Here's the truth. We read this this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
The truth is, we all sin, and the good news is Jesus sent him to save us from our sin. Romans chapter 8. Some more good news. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. See this right here? These 600 commands from Genesis to Malachi. All those could do is point to you and say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And your sin, the wages of sin is death, Romans tells us. But in Christ, Jesus shows up on the scene. The fulfillment of the promise of the ages, in Christ there is now no condemnation. That's a beautiful thing. So may we not cheapen the gospel or lessen the mission that Jesus came for. By refusing to acknowledge sin, refusing to call sin, sin. Because when we do so, we lessen our need for the Savior. We cheapen what Jesus came to do. And the last verse, our hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A a good verse to end on, especially with the season this family's been in. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and following. The sting of death is sin. That's what makes sin, or what makes death and dying hurt the most. Sin. And the power of sin is the law. The law just condemns us again and again and again. But, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our hope, not just for us, but for the whole world. And so, may we continue to acknowledge sin for what it is. May we turn from it. May we repent of it. May we turn to Jesus. And may we seek him for reconciliation and redemption. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious gift of your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's really such a a mind-blowing idea that you sent yourself, your Son, to us in the flesh to live perfectly and to die on our behalf. That your blood atone for our sins that we could not atone for. And Lord, I pray that we continually have the heart that runs toward the Savior and flees from every appearance of sin. May we as the church continue to talk about sin plainly and clearly, but to do so in a way that points everyone who hears to the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, you know we were powerless (laughs) from the moment of the garden, the moment we entered the world, the moment that our lives began, uh, all of our sin. We're incapable of 
paying the debt on even one. We are not good enough by ourselves. And so we thank you for that gift, which is far too amazing to put into words. But we do thank you for it. And Lord, I pray this week that not only will we have a deep appreciation, a deeper appreciation for your love and for your grace through Christ, but that we will share the hope that we have and the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. And may the world hear more about him through us, not for our glory, Father, but for yours. Thank you, Father, for how you love us, and thank you for how you've redeemed us through Christ Jesus. In spite of our sin, you sent a Savior. He is our eternal hope, and it's through his name that we pray. Amen.